Hello, my name is Charles Feltman, and this is Trust on Purpose, believe it or not. And I'm going to actually let my wonderful co-podcaster introduce herself. My name is Ela Edgar, and we have a juicy one to talk about today. Yes, we do. I think, you know, the conversation before the conversation, I think that this happens more often than we think it does. And so let me set this up just a little bit for our lovely listening audience. The situation is a senior leader in an organization, and this individual has made a number of commitments to his colleagues, also at the senior leadership level, about things that his team will and can do. The tricky is, is that he doesn't check with his team first. He's newer to the organization, so less than a year. Many of his team have been with the organization for 10 plus years. So they know systems, they know each other well. There's a lot of competence that they have developed around how to do their jobs and what works and what limitations there are. So one of the commitments that was made was around something that he needed the technology to be able to do. So the platform that they use in this organization. And he made the commitment to his senior leadership team that it could be done. Well, turns out it actually can't. Not because the people aren't ready, willing, and able, but it's actually a function that is not possible with this particular technology. He has also made commitments, again, to his senior leadership colleagues around the timeliness of when things can be done. He's done this without checking the capacity, the capability, what might get in the way, is this doable, and makes these commitments without checking with his team. So I'm giggling because I can see you. <laughs> your eyes are rolling back. You're shaking your head. So as I describe this, what's coming to mind for you? The first thing that comes to mind, actually, is that that is not an unusual situation at all, and that there are all sorts of variations of that, of course. But I have seen in many different organizations situations where people make, it's usually leaders, but sometimes not, people make commitments on behalf of others before they check and before the others have an opportunity to say, yeah, we can do that, or, you know, maybe, maybe not, or whatever it is. It's a pretty common thing, as you said. Your example is one of many, 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 many. And in my experience, what the outcome when this happens is trust begins to be eroded. Trust between the leader or whoever it is making the commitments and the people they're making the commitments to, because inevitably there's a calling to account when whatever it is they promised actually isn't delivered because it couldn't be. There is also a lack of trust or loss of trust between the leader and the people that they're making those commitments to is or for or on behalf of. And how to build distrust between yourself and those you lead, that's a great way to do it. Absolutely a fabulous way to do it. Mm -hmm. They may love you and they won't trust you. And I've even been in situations I'm thinking of one right now where a leader, some of his colleagues at his level, his peers, 
in other parts of the organization, engineering, for example, or even sales, believe it or not, didn't want him going to a customer site and talking to customers unless one of them was along because he would be liable to make commitments to customers that were not possible to complete or to do or to bring forth. And so, of course, they were losing trust with their customers because of his way of doing that, his penchant for doing that, I should say. So this is not an uncommon problem at all. The thing that amazes me is that the people who do this, they have good intentions. In most cases, it's not like they're being jerks. They're thinking that it's possible that somehow it's going to get done and they're doing something good for the company by moving it forward, even if they need to push it forward. Or I would say that's often the case. But boy, does it cause problems. I don't disagree with your, they're coming from good intentions. And also, I'm so curious about what drives that behavior. I worked with a group for the last two days in person. And one of the things that we unpacked was our itty bitty committee. A number of them, this is really interesting, a number of them had people pleasing as a driver. So, you know, as I listen to this, and we know this to be true because you and I get to peek into all sorts of organizations and all sorts of teams, that there is this behavior of making commitments without checking. We're making a generous assumption that they're trying to come from good intention. What's underneath that's driving this behavior? And I wonder if the other part, in addition to some people being people pleasers and they are not seeing that that's driving their behavior, I wonder if there's also an element of, oh, well, I can't say no. There could be. Although at that level, I think most people, the VP level and that sort of thing, probably recognize they can say no. They don't want to say no. Mm. They don't want to be the person bringing the bad news. Yes. Thank you for that. So I've coached this leader and I know quite a bit of his team. And I'm thinking a little bit about Aaron Meyer's work in the culture map. And I would say what I know and have observed with him is I don't think he knows how to say no. And then also, I don't want to disappoint. I want to deliver on what my VP peers are asking of me. And all of this, the impact to the team, I don't even think they like him anymore. Like, nice person, but there's so much resentment. And I feel like they don't think that he actually hears and sees them. Yeah, I would imagine that's true. That was certainly the case with the gentleman I was referring to earlier as well. His team had a great deal of respect for his ability as a marketer. They did not respect the fact that, that he didn't respect them and was making promises, commitments on their behalf without asking them and mm -hmm. that they couldn't fulfill. And then something had to be done about that. So there's the, I want to be able to say, yes, I want to be the team player who comes through among my peers or in front of a customer or whoever that is. I really want this to be the case that this happens. It's so odd, actually, to me, as I think about it. What's driving it is something to do with, you know, what's going on for them in terms of either people-pleasing or wanting to be seen as part of the team or helpful or whatever. 
and they're not even, they're not consciously aware of it, as was the gentleman I was working with. And when he got the feedback, he was kind of crushed. Mm. He got the feedback from his team and from his peers, who at that point, they were the ones who were saying, look, we don't want you going and talking to a customer without one of us there because we're afraid you're going to make commitments on behalf of our engineering team or even on behalf of the company in general. And the sales guys are going to have to bear the burden of that. And the engineering people are going to have to bear the burden of that. And it's a real problem. And so once he kind of heard from all those different people, he had to take stock and go, wait a minute. I, I see this. I'm beginning to see that this is a problem because he wasn't trusted by anybody. Now in our four trust domains, he was highly trusted in the domain of competence. He was a super competent marketer, but because he made commitments without checking, people were not only not trusting him in the domain of reliability, they were also not trusting him in the domains of sincerity or even care. Mm -hmm. So the only place he had left to build any trust or maintain any trust was being a great marketer. And that just wasn't cutting it. People were just over it with him. Yeah. Well, it's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to be able to work with and have a relationship with, to have your bucket of competence is your only bucket. Yeah. Oh, so as you're saying this, the other thing, and I don't know if this is actually part of the situation that I shared, but as you were saying, as you were speaking, what I thought of was also then the leader has had a conversation with the team, has heard their feedback or pushback to say, no, that's not possible, or, you know, we don't have the bandwidth, whatever their response is. And the inability of this leader to go back to the senior executive to say, we can't do it, or we don't have the bandwidth, or it doesn't have the functionality or whatever. And so it's like a double doozy. So A, you've committed without talking to us. And now B, we've laid out the facts of the situation about what is possible and not possible. And now the double doozy is you don't also have our back. You're not going and saying, being accountable to I made a commitment or I made a promise that isn't actually possible. Yes, that's a, that's a tough one. And the motivation there is pretty clear. The person doesn't want to be accountable to their own state their own action that created this situation in the first place. Right. So if I think of how that team would feel or how I would feel if that had happened to me, wow, that might be enough to push me out the door. I would feel so disrespected, so let down, so uncared for, so unsupported that basically the message is, I know you said you can't do this or that this can't be done, but you have to. So figure out a way. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I've been in situations where I've heard people like that person you're describing say to the team, you just got to do it. You just got to suck it up and do it. Which, okay, but, but, but it's just the way that you said that with your tone and your body. So there's a difference between the dismissiveness of you told me things and I actually don't care. So just suck it up and get it done versus the energy from a leader that realizes he has overcommitted or made a promise has not been able to renegotiate. And it really is, we have to find a way to get this done. 
and I'm here with you versus you guys figure this out on your own. Yeah. That would be a whole different ball game. Yes. Yes. And there certainly are leaders who, you know, I talked, work with and coach lots of leaders who they get pressure from their senior leadership to get something done, to make something happen, to get something out the door in a particular time frame or whatever that is. So they're under a lot of pressure. So they're caught kind of in the middle between their teams who is saying to them, we don't know how in the world we're going to get this done. And their senior management, whoever that might be, who is saying you have to get it done. And so where is the trust building there? <laughs> the senior management, whatever is, is essentially saying, I don't trust that you're being honest when you tell me it can't be done. It's got to be done. You've got to find a way. I, I'm sure you can find a way. And then goes back to the team and the team says, how the heck are we going to do this? And so the trust building move, as you just said, is to say, well, here's the situation. And what can we possibly do? How can we move this forward as quickly as possible? And what's realistic? And can you give me something that'll let me go back to senior manager and give them some kind of a counter offer, if you will, yeah. that is realistic, but also aggressive as possible? Yeah. And I will completely support you in, in that. Yeah. I think the other trust building move that would make such a difference for me if I was reporting to a leader like this is for him to acknowledge, I see that I've done this. I acknowledge that I actually, this is a behavior, this isn't the first time. I see the impact that it has on you, my team. My next move is I will go and speak with my colleagues and take accountability for not checking. And then let's see what we can do, what is possible but I won't make any commitments without conferring with you. Yes. Yeah. Like that would, my respect, my trust level would go through the roof. And I know a lot of folks whose trust level might not go through the roof, but at least it would start moving back from high distrust towards, you know, trust. The needle would move in the right direction mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, you said him, and we've both been using him, I think, because we have particular people in mind, but women are just as prone to this as men are. <laughs> okay, so, damn it. <laughs> it isn't just men. I knew you were going to say that. No, no, no. <laughs> Interestingly, I think women tend to overcommit for themselves more. Oh, you're looking at one right here. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> so let's just say... I can overcommit because, well, A, value of generosity. I really like saying yes. So I overcommit. This was before I had clear operationalization of my boundaries. So this is, this is not current state. And also, I have a hard time saying no. And also, here's my learning edge lately, is I often underestimate how long it's going to take me to do something. And then... I make promises or commitments that I haven't checked with my husband. <laughs> He's on the receiving end of my urgency. It's not necessarily that I require him to do anything. He just gets the energy that I bring when I'm in a state of, holy shit, I have a lot to get done. 
And I'm laughing because it is funny now. But yeah, in my early years when I didn't have the awareness, I hadn't unpacked what was going on and why this was happening and even knew that I had behaviors to shift. Yeah, they were my monkeys and it was my circus. <laughs> well, I'm kind of right with you in some respect. My, my wife would tell you that whenever I say, oh, I'll, I'll get that project, that house project done in four hours, she automatically adds another four hours. <laughs> you know, she doesn't even hesitate to add another yeah. four hours. Yeah. Double the yeah. time I'm, I'm estimating that it'll take. Mm. Now, that's not so much the case in work that I do all the time, like yeah. the work that you yeah. and I do. Yeah. yeah. So if I'm designing a leadership development workshop or a trust workshop for a client, I'm pretty clear. I'm pretty good at estimating how much time it's really going to take me. But if it's a house project, I, first of all, I haven't factored in the number of times I'm actually going to have to go to the hardware store <laughs> and get yet another thing that I need. Anyway, that, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other episode. I think what, in a sense, bringing it back to what we're talking about, there are people who, who have been working for a while in their field and still aren't really very competent at estimating how long it's going to take them to do something. And I was talking to a client the other day. Right now, I'm working with two client companies that are completely virtual. They basically go from you know, back to back to back to back to back Zoom calls all day long. So they have no time to get any actual work done for the day, during the day. So they work kind of after hours, if you will, and sometimes on weekends. And in fact, someone from one of those companies was sending me some, you know, an email about something on a Sunday. And I emailed back and said, why are you sending me emails on a Sunday? And she said, that's the only day I have to get stuff like this done. Oh, oh. But they're particularly handicapped when it comes to being able to estimate how long it's going to take them to do something because they're not able to really take more than a few minutes between Zoom meetings and calls and stuff to do work. So for them, even if they can estimate well, they need to be able to say, no, I can't do that. Or you're asking me to get it done by this date, but can't possibly, can we do it by this date? But I think this back-to-back, -back, this world of every Zoom all the time and back-to-back -back Zoom meetings is really taking its toll on a lot of people out there. And it is damaging trust because people don't mm -hmm. necessarily have time to get stuff done, especially if they were even four years ago working in an in-person environment have now moved to be completely virtual. Their estimating ability comes from a different time. They had time to think about things and to mm -hmm. work things out as they walked from a meeting in one building to a meeting in another building or on another floor or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. That doesn't exist anymore in their worlds. Mm. How do we think that leaders could, A, be more intentional about not putting themselves in this position? And also, if they have put themselves in this position, what could they do to rebuild? Well, again, I've said this before, and I know you have too, really making trust building and relationship building a priority. We tend to be focused on the task side of things. And when we focus only there, 
it's really easy to forget about the relationship and the trust and all of that and just, you know, okay, got to get this thing done. I got to get it done by a certain time or I want it to be done or I want to be able to say yes to this. Forgetting that actually trust is really foundational. So I think part of it is really keeping in mind, paying attention to the trust element, the relationship element of working together with other people and what might get in the way of that. Mm -hmm. So thinking it through from that perspective, if I say this, where might trust be damaged? It sounds really simple, <laughs> but if I've got a real strong penchant for pleasing people, I have to be aware of that. I have to know that that's something that I'm going to fight against. I'm going to have to fight against mm -hmm. my, my well-practiced habit of just saying yes. Yes. So I've got this habit. So I'm going to change that habit. Two things that come to mind here. I'm going to go back a step and say, people also like to make offers. And this is what gets people in trouble too. I love to make an offer. So I make an offer. What I'm not keeping in mind is that once that other person that I'm making my offer to accepts it, they will hold it as a commitment, as a promise. And I may still be functioning with this. Oh, I made the offer, so I get to you know change it or do whatever I want with it. It's just my offer. It's really amazing how differently people kind of think about that. But the person who's accepted the offer is now holding it as a commitment. And so just even understanding that can be an important step in recognizing that if I'm about to make an offer, is this really a good idea? And should I be making this offer under these conditions? And then if it's on the other side, somebody's asking me to do something, really stopping and saying, okay, what's, what is going to be important in terms of maintaining trust here or building trust with my direct reports? with their teams, with my peers, with my boss, thinking through that lens of trust and not just through the lens of activity and getting things done, urgency and all that stuff that mm -hmm. is so much a big part of our work lives. This was shared with me quite recently. It made sense when she said it, but I hadn't really thought about it in this way. So this particular person is quite a driver, so a high D in the disc, and stated that when she comes in in the morning, it's straight to business with her team. Yeah, and realizing that there was no relationship building happening. And this was the part that I found so fascinating is she shared, I feel like I'm being respectful of their time. We're all really busy. And so passing by and getting straight to work means that I'm not wasting their time. I'm not disrespecting their time. And there we have the big disconnect in terms of expectations. What does it mean to work together well? Yeah. Interpretations of yeah. what's important in working together. And yeah. like so many other things related to this, including trust itself, building trust. As you and I keep offering people, you need a conversation about it. The only way that people are going to understand those differences is if people talk about it. Whether it's a team doing DISC and then sharing the results and then talking about what that means in a practical sense, 
or as we talk about operationalizing being a high D, what does that actually look and sound like? So having those conversations, what does it look like to be trustworthy? Well, it looks like you coming back to me and asking me before you make any commitments or offers, which will become commitments because the other person listens the offer and says, yes, that's great. Do it. Having the conversation about what our standards are in all of the domains of trust. And if we don't take the time to do that, then we're constantly running into our own habitual, limited understandings of each other and what we're trying to do together. What's important to you might not be important to me and vice versa. When we don't take the time to understand that, we can't respect it. And when we can't respect it or don't respect it, that leads to distrust. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe this is a good place to bring this to a close. Is there anything else that is cooking for you and this that you'd like to add? No, I think I'm complete. Well, there can <laughs> always be more conversation. You, right. you and I could go on for this forever, but I think for this one, yeah, I think this is a good place to stop. And I think we talked a little about this in the conversation before the conversation. In a future episode, we're going to look at a related situation wherein someone is getting pressure from upper management to do something that they, they can't do. And how do they, when their manager or their manager's manager doesn't believe them when they say, I don't have the capacity, how to handle that? Because that's part of this. It's entangled with all of this, I think, to some degree. Mm -hmm. We'll tackle that one in a future episode. Excellent. Thank you for this one, though. Thank you, too. And we'll see, well, I'll see you next time. They'll hear us next time. Yes, they'll hear us next time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Charles. Take care, all of you. Thank you, Hila, and thank you to our listeners. On behalf of both Charles and myself, we want to say a big thank you to our producer and sound editor, Chad Penner, Hillary Rideout of Inside Out Branding, who does our promotion, our amazing graphics, and marketing for us. And our theme music was composed by Jonas Smith. If you have any questions or comments for us about the podcast, if you have a trust-related situation that you'd like us to take up in one of our episodes, we'd love to hear from you at trust at trustonpurpose.org. And we'd also like to thank you, our listeners. Take care and keep building trust on purpose. Until next time. Until next time.